gave her uh, over about five minutes, gave her the uh, one and a half milligram per kilo loading dose, and then we started the infusion. It was, it was quite late in the evening by then, so uh, I, I popped my head in sort of an hour later just before I went home, and um, she was starting to settle. And then I came back to see her in the morning, and uh, to cut a long story short, basically about two hours after the infusion started, all her pain settled down, and she s- just slept through the night. And uh, chatting to her on the ward round in the morning when it had been going for about 12 hours, you know, she said, oh, I, I still have some pain, it's about two out of three, and um, um, but it's, it's much better. Welcome to episode 37 of the Obson Gynec Rick Care Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, so this week I'm joined by a colleague of mine, Kevin, who uh, doc, uh, Dr. Kevin Chan, who is another um, consultant anaesthetist in our department. Hello. He, he's uh, famous for being the face of the elective caesarean video down in the pre-admission clinic. So most of the obstetric patients who come through uh, recognise him when they come through the department. Um, so thanks, uh, thanks for joining me, Kevin. Thank you. Um, so this week I've asked Kevin to help me out. I thought what we would do is a um, a podcast on intravenous lidocaine infusions. Note I said lidocaine, not lignocaine. We might talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and the reason I asked Kevin is because I know he's a bit of an enthusiast, and um, he's actually uh, told me some of the some of the stuff he does has given me a few ideas over the over the last year or two as well. So, uh, I know for some people uh, this is not a new thing, but maybe uh, I'm aware that some people might have never heard of this before. So, um, hopefully, you'll find this interesting. Before we get on, a quick mention about the uh, the quiz I had last week. So congratulations to Nolan McDonnell, who recognised that the picture I had put on the podcast was um, James Blundell, who is famous f- uh, in um, transfusion circles for being like one of the forebears of um, transfusion medicine. I think he's famous for actually um, getting uh, husbands or... Um, or uh, yeah, husbands to donate blood to women having postpartum hemorrhages, and uh, also um, collecting shed blood from women having postpartum hemorrhages and trying to reinfuse it into them. Uh, and this was all back at the beginning of the 1800s, so a long time ago. Uh, but good spotting, uh, Nolan. I think uh, Nolan's used that picture in one of his talks before, so that's probably why he's recognised it so easily. Okay, Kevin. So um, tell me about intravenous lidocaine. You know. That sounds crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. Isn't lidocaine a or lignocaine a, a local anaesthetic? And didn't I do a podcast with um, uh, Chris, one of our fellows, about how local anaesthetic toxicity can kill you? You know, gives you seizures and puts you into um, crazy cardiac arrhythmias. So, surely uh, giving this stuff uh, intravenously over a long period of time is dangerous. Uh, yeah. Uh I mean that's that, that's crazy talk, isn't it? Infusing local anaesthetic in uh, 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 intravenously into someone, but uh, but but truth be told, it has actually been uh, been tried since 1961. Uh, it, it was first tried by a couple of doctors in uh, in, in Boston in an attempt to uh, aid in the relief of postoperative pain. Um, and since then, there, there's been numerous um, trials and studies looking into infuse, infusing um, lidocaine intravenously. And it has been shown to um, to have some benefits, including reductions in uh, post-op pain, nausea, ileus, and uh, opioid requirements. So, yep. uh, So, yeah. And um, so actually the devil's in the detail, isn't it? So 
lidocaine is uh, especially if it's done in the right dose and at the right um, uh, in the, in the right way in, in an infusion it's actually pretty safe so it's um yeah, right. we're, we're going to do delve down into the sort of uh, nitty-gritty of the pharmacokinetics but it's actually metabolized really fast isn't it? Sure. and um, it is yeah and uh, yeah. it's got a much wider uh, safety sort of profile than um, some of the longer acting local anesthetics which are which um, we're traditionally scared of like um, bupivacaine yeah that's right uh, yeah, so it's uh, so that CNS CVS toxicity ratio is uh, is a lot wider for lidocaine than it is for the other local anesthetics. And we are going to talk about this a little bit further on, but uh, you know, already um, people are thinking, well, yeah, it sounds interesting, but I'm not going to bother because um, you know what I'm doing already is pretty good. Um, so why would someone bother? I'm just going to put in my own comment here as well. You know, traditionally, um, most general anesthetics rely on the use of opioids for for both intraoperative sort of analgesia, although that's a bit of a um, misnomer if you ask me because patients are actually unconscious so they don't feel pain so we're, we're really using it sort of for hemodynamic stability uh, and to try and help patients or stop patients from moving around when they have a noxious stimulus um, but certainly like post in the post-operative uh, period which uh, intravenous lo- uh, lidocaine is used um, you know it's a it's an analgesia used for analgesia and uh, you know traditionally we have relied heavily on um, opioids uh, and so I put it to you that basically all the problems with opioids can be, um, yeah, are the sort of things that we might be able to um, avoid if we re- if we use an alternative uh, analgesic regimen like intravenous lidocaine. So, respiratory depression. You know, all these patients in our recovery rooms who are having having to be closely monitored because they're not breathing properly uh, or, they're, or or they're sort of semi-conscious. Post uh, post-operative nausea and vomiting, um, problems with uh, ileus, and then of course. Um, in the longer term, you know, if we if we use lots and lots of opioids in the perioperative period, then they have to go home on them as well. And and uh, so maybe if we can do things to try and minimise the use of opioids both in theatre and in the immediate sort of couple of days afterwards, this is a good idea. Uh, and so it's worth the effort to learn how to use this new technique. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. Any any other comments, Kevin? Um, no, no, that's um, uh, I completely agree with that, um, and definitely. Uh, uh, it's quite topical now um, that the harm that, that comes from um, from opioids or inappropriate use of opioids, and so yeah, definitely um, any effort to, to to reduce their use is uh, is uh, useful. And I uh, just want to mention, so this, uh, Dr. Sonia Ting and I did a couple of um, uh, podcast interviews a few months back on this topic about opioids and and some of the problems around them. So we won't we won't dwell on that anymore. Uh, and also, I don't want to. Um, we're just uh, hoping to do a bit of a sort of a brief overview of this topic uh, to get people interested, um, but we're probably not going to be giving you enough detail for you to sort of feel like you can go out and start uh, using it confidently. So what we might do though is we're going to there's a couple there's a three or four really good resources which um, we've got a lot of our sort of information from which we will leave uh, on the uh, web page uh, linked to this podcast. So there's a, a BJA education um, article. And uh, from 2016, and which is free, open access, uh, which also has a podcast uh, where they interview someone from Ottawa, who's um, which is one of the centres that has been using this technique for a very long time. Uh, and closer to home, the the Blue Book or the Australasian Anesthesia um, publication, which has come out recently. There's a few people, uh, uh, a few colleagues here in Western Australia who uh, did a really great article in there as well. So I recommend you guys read that. Okay, so now I'm going to hand over to Kevin again. So, Kevin, do you want to explain to the listeners 
How does uh, intravenous lidocaine work? Um, it's got a few different mechanisms of action, doesn't it? Uh, it does, yeah. So traditionally, um, lidocaine's uh, analgesic effects uh, is related to its ability to block um, voltage-gated sodium channels on, um, on nerves, essentially, and hence interrupt um, actual potential transmission in um, nociceptive nerves. But, you know, it does have a systemic mechanism of action when given intravenously, so its mechanism of action is likely to be more complex than than just pure sodium channel blockade. Um, I mean, especially given the fact that intravenous administration would only block a very small proportion of, um, of neuronal sodium channels. Um, and so its uh, opioid sparing and anti-inflammatory effects must involve some other effects sites and receptor targets as well. So for instance, this anti-inflammatory effects, um, you know, it, it has been shown, uh, seen that, um, that lidocaine has a ability to ability to block the priming of neutrophils through uh, blocking of G proteins, for example. And it also has um, uh, uh, an ability to uh, to inhibit nuclear kappa B and macrophages as well. Uh, so uh, reducing levels of inflammatory mediators such as interleukins, interferon gamma and TNF alpha, um, which are all thought to be mediators, uh, well, pro-inflammatory mediators responsible for development of a number of um, complications such as uh, pain and ileus. Um, the, um, uh, it's also been, um, so, so the lidocaine intravenous has also been so observed to prevent chronic post-surgical pain as well. Um, and the mechanisms here are not uh, all that entirely clear, but there is a number of thoughts, including um, the fact that its anti-inflammatory effects help prevent some of the neurobiological changes that sensitize nociceptors within hours of injury. Um, but also, um, uh, there's another theory that lidocaine actually limits central sensitization through NMDA receptor blockade and um, and preventing upregulation of sodium channels in the dorsal horn. All right. So I guess in summary, uh, and there's a really good... Um uh, description of some of this by the Ottawa um, per, uh, expert as well on the BJA article. Um, so in summary, it's, it's, it's analgesic, but it also prevents hyperalgesia and um, tolerance, and it's anti-inflammatory, and, um, and it's good for the gut as well. There, So uh, it's for some reason it's, it's pro-kinetic or it helps stimulate the gut motility, and um, all those mechanisms are, are the ones that are proposed. So, That's right. so it's more than just a local anaesthetic really, isn't it, which is really interesting. Yeah. Who would you consider using um, intravenous lidocaine in um, given? I'll, I'll give my answer in a minute, but I'll just ask you, just a sort of broad overview. Sure. Um, so, so, uh, so broadly, um, uh, I mean, you know, it has been reviewed in, in uh, several recent meta-analyses and systematic reviews as well. Um, the, the best evidence uh, for it comes in, um, uh, is for open uh, and laparoscopic abdominal procedures, including colectomies cholecystectomies and appendicectomies. Um, so those are uh, that, that's where the evidence is strongest uh, with regards to improving pain scores on a visual analog scale um, with both rest and activity, as well as decreasing um, opioid consumption, uh, reducing the duration of um, ileus and uh, the incidence of post-op nausea and vomiting as well. Um, so uh, most definitely, um, uh, I would consider it in um, in abdominal procedures. Um, there is some uh, evidence of benefit in um, in other surgeries like um, uh, spinal surgery and, and and certain day surgeries uh, and prostatectomies. Um, and um, although um, 
um, I mean, like the the the, the literature there doesn't show a lot of benefit with with certain surgeries like obstetrics, um, thoracics, and hip surgery, and there's no um, obvious reason why um, the effectiveness would differ between. I guess relatively similar procedures, but um, but it is possible that um, that these differences may result really from study design or sample size considerations um, rather than um, anything real. So uh, certainly more studies are needed. Um, and uh, aside from surgical indications, there are certain population groups that may benefit, um, particularly um, the opioid sparing effects that we mentioned before, um, warrants to mention and. Um, and of course, there is a benefit of uh, carrying out GAs with uh, minimal opioids, particularly for the obese, those with sleep disordered breathing, um, particularly if you're trying to conserve opioids in cancer surgery and those with a history of severe post-op nausea and vomiting as well. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. So those, so, so my the way I um, think about it, like you, I agree, there's the most evidence is for abdominal surgery, and that's probably where it's used the most uh, in our practice as well, I'm guessing. Um, and I do a bit of spine stuff as well, so I definitely use it for that. But I just think, uh, in general, if there's a if the if there's a regional technique that you can use for an operation like hip surgery, a lot of them have um, regional techniques as part of the anaesthetic. The additional benefit of then going on and adding in lignocaine lign- or lidocaine infusion might be um, uh, less efficacious. And um, so, so I also think if if um giving an anaesthetic for anything that's really quite painful where I can't use a regional technique for some reason, I consider using the intravenous lidocaine as a, as a substitute. Um, so say, for example, you're doing something where you would normally use a block like um, joint surgery or shoulder surgery or something like that, um, but for some reason you can't or you're unable to, then you know, consider adding this in as, as an alternative, even though perhaps it hasn't been as well studied. Um, but yeah, I think the but far and away, you know, it's it's the patients, uh, not necessarily the surgery, which you, which might cause you to choose this as a useful technique. And I agree strongly that um, the morbidly obese and the people with um, known sleep apnea or risk of sleep apnea, this is um, you know a bit of a game changer because you don't need to load them up with lots of opioids in theatre, and you get to recovery and you extubate them or take the LMA out, and they're sort of wide awake, they're not snoring, and they're not uh, they don't have respiratory depression, so it's really useful. Um, and the other thing is opioid tolerant and chronic pain patients. I'm not sure if we mentioned that. So I've seen, uh, I might even give my an anecdote for a couple of patients who I've had to deal with on the ward with uh, problems like that in, in, in a little while when we talk about that. So I just wanted to share with the listeners a, um, a real case of mine from about a year and a half ago. So um, we had um, started to introduce the um, lignocaine infusions for use on our high dependency ward. And I was on for an evening shift and I was called to see a patient up on the ward who uh, had, had a history of uh, chronic pain and chronic pelvic pain and had undergone a laparoscopic operation earlier in the day. Um, she was, you know, preoperatively was on about um, five or six uh, chronic analgesic drugs. I can't remember the, the cocktail, but it involved some opioids and things like pregabalin, uh, amitriptyline, non-steroidals and various other things. And she had lots of um, psychosocial um, contributing factors. But anyway, to cut a long story short, she'd been up on the ward for about four hours after her surgery and she'd had very generous analgesia given during the operation um, but the team up there were pulling the hair out because she'd had about um, three doses of sublingual buprenorphine, a couple of doses of tramadol and um, all the other sort of non-opioid things and she was still complaining of severe pain. I went up and had a look at her and um, you know she was certainly not narco, she was wide awake, she looked um, 
you know, she was she was agitated and looked very um, distressed and upset. And so um, basically what we did was we uh, brought her down to the high dependency ward. We started a uh, lignin can infusion down there. Um, so the, I carefully gave her uh, over about five minutes, gave her the uh, one and a half milligram per kilo loading dose, and then we started the infusion. It was, it was quite late in the evening by then, so uh, I... I popped my head in sort of an hour later just before I went home and um, she was starting to settle and then I came back to see her in the morning and uh, to cut a long story short, basically about two hours after the infusion started all her pain settled down and she just slept through the night and uh, chatting to her on the ward round in the morning when it had been going for about 12 hours, you know, she said oh, I, I still have some pain, it's about two out of three and um, um, but it's than it normally is. So basically the operation and all the gas from the uh, laparoscopy stirred things up and uh, you know, you know, she already had uh, you know, wind up and lots of pre-existing problems. So this was a really useful uh, uh, example of uh, of this being a really useful um, um, intervention to get a, uh, to get a control on things safely. Um, and then you mentioned cancer. So there is uh, there's a lot of people who think that um, uh, this is an area that needs more study because um, it's a promising um, that it may actually be useful. Um, and uh, all this um, discussion around onchoanesthesia and, and the effects of the anaesthetic that we give on uh, progression of cancer. So that's uh, so I think that was the next thing I was going to mention as our, for us to talk, wasn't it? I, I said, what are the big unanswered questions? So yeah, so people talk about trying to promote it in cancer surgery, especially abdominal cancer surgery. Um, prevention of chronic pain, yeah, perhaps, perhaps that's a, um, and that's sort of closely linked with just the prevention of long-term opioid use. So if you use this as part of your strategy to decrease perioperative opioids, then they're less likely to go home on opioids and you know, maybe you're preventing people from being on long-term opioids. And it's definitely used a lot in some um, places in the world. They use intravenous lid lidocaine for the ERAS protocols and things because they're um, you know, trying to get people up and around quickly and minimise opioids, which um, can sometimes interfere with that. Yeah, just to echo what you said before about um, uh, about uh, yeah, just sort of ERAS protocols and, um, and and regional techniques. So there was a trial that studied patients uh, undergoing open colon um, open colon surgeries and uh, randomised them into three groups: so epidural, IV lidocaine, and uh, standard care, which was opioids systemically. And um, although the epidural group did uh, have better pain relief and lower opioid consumption um, than than, than, than either group um, in a 72 hours post-op. The IV lidocaine group was better in all respects than the control group, which was systemic analgesia. So um, so even though thoracic epidurals may still be a, a gold standard, so to speak, for open surgery, IV lidocaine may offer a useful alternative, uh, especially when epidurals are contraindicated, uh, refused or they fail. Yeah, that's right. So oh, I can think of lots of um, situations where we've been unable to use uh, neuroxial regional techniques for sort of major um, abdominal surgery and uh, this is a really useful technique and in fact uh, for a lot of uh, laparotomies that I do now I, I um, uh, use this interop, uh, intravenous lidocaine interop and then we use rectus sheath catheters which are uh, our technique of choice post-op and hopefully I'm going to get uh, Dr. Ruckledge on to talk about those in, a, in an episode coming up soon. It's pretty good. All right, shall we? Um, so, so we've got the listeners hooked. I think hopefully they're all going. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea as long as um, uh, as long as we do it safely. So I reckon we should probably talk about the actual practical implementation of how you do it. Um, obviously, encourage readers to go if they're thinking about learning this. It's new to them to go off and uh, learn this in more detail than just listening to our sort of overview spiel. But we we can just sort of um, 
go through basically uh, the basics of the pharmacology and um, and how you could use it. Um, so, should we take turns? Yeah, I'll, sure. I'll talk about. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll just briefly talk about. So um, the BJ article talks about the therapeutic index or window. So basically. The um, therapeutic concentration you're aiming for is 2.5 to 3.5 mics per mil. Uh, that's the concentration of lidocaine in the um, in the plasma. And greater, if you get it greater than five mics per mil, they usually patients start to get some CNS symptoms. It's usually mild, like um, they feel drowsy, or they might have a uh, numbness or tingling sensation in their face or their extremities. Um, and then it says that yeah, yeah, class, classically greater than 10 will cause seizures or serious CNS toxicity. And uh, sort of much higher, uh, higher than that, even further will cause cardiovascular collapse. So basically, all the inf- regimens that are used are trying to sort of uh, get people into the therapeutic concentration range. So, how do we do that, Kevin? Um, so, uh, a lot of the, uh, I guess, like like the studies and trials today um, have have tried different dosages. Um, uh, what, what different boluses and infusion rates uh, to try to work out what kind of plasma concentrations that we're getting and and um, you know and, uh, evidence of effect and, and side effects. The great majority of the trials were conducted with boluses of uh, between one to three milligrams per kilo IV, and an infusion of between 0.5 and three milligrams per kilo per hour. Uh, but the but the great majority uh, quote one to well, a one to two milligram per kilo bolus and um, and and around a two milligram per kilo per hour infusion. Um, so uh, so it has a so, so the drug itself has a very um, high hepatic extraction ratio. So the liver metabolizes it really quickly. Um, so if metabolism is not really it's not dependent only on um, the metabolic capacity of the liver, but also the liver blood flow as well. Um, so a continuous, so because of that, a continuous infusion without a bolus will take about four to eight hours to reach a steady state plasma concentration, uh, and hence that's why giving a bolus is uh, is important. Yep. And um, and on and then when even after you run it, um, so as, as an infusion, even after a prolonged infusion, uh, the plasma levels decrease quite quickly. So for instance, the um, the, the Ottawa guys they quote. Um, a contact-sensitive half-time um, after even a three-day infusion of lidocaine of about 20 to 40 minutes with no accumulation over time in, uh, in healthy individuals. Uh, but uh, but that's, that's, that's the key here. So to use it safely, um, um, uh, it is important to note that the metabolism of, of lidocaine by the liver yields active metabolites, which are, which are then excreted by the kidneys. So even though the terminal half-life is 19 minutes in healthy individuals, it, it blows out to uh, 136 minutes for those with heart failure and uh, and much, much longer. So it's 300 minutes for those with liver failure. So really you should use the... So for patients with um, heart, liver or kidney dysfunction, um, think twice about using a... Um, a lidocaine infusion or avoided it altogether. Yeah, I agree. So, um, yeah, so avoided in people who have got organ dysfunction, definitely a good idea. Um, having said that, a lot of our patients um, have normal organ function, and we've actually, here in our institution, even we had someone on a, a lidocaine infusion for about seven or eight days. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. That this, it's, it's, the, it's got a very short contact-sensitive half-time, so... Um, so it's a very. It seems to be very safe uh, as an infusion as long as you're giving it at the uh, correct doses. And talking to people who have used it in their institutions for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, the times when they run into problems is not. Uh, it's more related to um, 
either programming errors uh, on a pump where someone has programmed the pump wrong or perhaps getting the wrong concentration local anesthetic. So it's really more about um, infusion-related errors than it is to do with sort of accumulation. So at the, the, the regimens that are normally quoted um, in people with normal um, metabolism, it, it seems to be very safe. Um, so that was that was pretty good. I'm just going to summarise what you said because you've given the milligram per kilos and things like that. So I'm just going to give a really brief summary. So if, mm. for example, you have a set, the average 70 kilo person yep. having a, let's say, laparoscopic um, gallbladder removal, um, <clears throat> you can't you can't just start the infusion because it, it, w- it won't even be therapeutic by the time they get to recovery. So you have to give a loading dose. And so I don't know what you use, Kevin. I think you're similar to me. I use one and a half milligrams per kilo. Yeah, so, so 70 kilo person, very, uh, very, very straightforward, like a 100 milligram uh, yep. bolus or, or, or 10 mils of the 1% lidocaine. Yes, exactly right. So 10 mils of the 1% lidocaine. Uh, and I give that uh, at the time of induction, you know, maybe over two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start the infusion. And that also, I so the quoted range is one to three milligrams per kilogram, but I just choose one and a half milligrams per kilogram per hour. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's 100 milligrams an hour. In a, in a 70 kilo person so that's 10 mils an hour of the one percent lignocaine and you just put it in a syringe driver and off you go yep that's exactly right so i guess the things you got to be careful about there are not getting two percent lignocaine or perhaps a lignocaine with adrenaline uh you know just not drawing up the wrong drug that's that's a, that's a key and then also programming the pump care carefully making yeah. sure you don't give it all too quick uh so um I think we've covered most of it. Um, so, w- if you're in a hospital where, or, or an institution or somewhere where, where this is a new thing and you haven't done, used it before and you just wanted to start using it, my suggestion would be to consider just using it in th- in, in theatre to start with, just to get a um, to get to get to grips with it, and um, and and consider just you know, continuing it in the in the PACU or the recovery ward until they go back to the the general ward, and that's usually where most most places get. Uh, start using this um, protocol and there's actually quite good evidence that even using it for that period of time uh, is of great benefit and there's even one study I think in prostate surgery where they showed it was open prostate surgery where they showed um, that using an intravenous lidocaine infusion for the surgery and then for the first hour afterwards in the recovery room um, even at day three there was um, separation of the two arms you know with decreased opioid requirements and um, Decreased pain and more mobilisation in, in the in the groups that had the lidocaine in theatre th- even three days later. So, so that's not a bad. It's a good way to get started, and you don't necessarily have to sort of jump straight in and, and start using it all around the hospital. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's definitely some evidence of uh, pre pre preventive pre preemptive analgesia effects. Uh, so effects of a drug long long after um, it's well uh, metabolised um, from from the body. So. Yep. Um, so yeah, so certainly I would uh, I agree with you. I would recommend if you were to start off, just uh, use it interruptively and perhaps impact you first. Yeah, um, but but even but but even then, uh, yeah. Again, based on the experience in Ottawa, um, uh, with uh, uh, with appropriate protocols and, um, and 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 trained nursing staff, it can be used very safely on the wards as well. Yeah, so I might even just mention that. So what uh, we did at um, our hospital here is we were using it in theatre for probably a good three years, but then we. We've set up a um, standardised protocol where we can use it in a high dependency unit, and that's that's where the patient who, for example, had the seven-day infusion had it done. Uh, where we have a standardised 0.4% bag of lidocaine, which um, which goes through a CAD pump, and so it's very. Uh, we've set it up so it's based on their height, so that it, it ha- so that the people who are programming have to 
um, have to base it on their ideal body weight. And not so, for example, if you have an obese patient, you shouldn't be give, basing your doses on uh, on uh, their actual body weight. You should be um, trying to figure out what their ideal body weight is. You know, what is their real uh, underlying body weights? You know, minus all the um, adipose tissue, because um, the lignocaine is you know volumes of distribution and metabolism are going to be more accurate if they're based on that. Um, but as you were mentioning, Kevin, in Ottawa, they say that if they've been using uh, lidocaine infusion safely and it's been going for a while in theatre or the, or the HDU and everything's stable, they actually run it for two or three days on a, on a general ward without ECG monitoring, just same, the same sort of level of observations as we traditionally use for intravenous uh, opioid PCAs, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, because the, uh, because the, um, the, the half-life is, uh, is so short, um, uh, like the thought is, once the uh, infusion is established at a um, at a at a steady rate um, in a monitored area such as PACU or even ICU or HDU, um, then then um, then uh, ECG monitoring is is, uh, is is probably not necessary um, um, because um, uh, uh, the signs of um, uh, Neurotoxicity um, uh, appear well before signs of cardiac toxicity, and so uh, he, herein lies uh, one of the uh, in, uh, important safety caveats: uh, is that uh, the nursing staff, as well as the patient, um, need to be well counselled about um, some of the early signs of toxicity, such as um, um, uh, numbness of the tongue, or tinnitus, or being feeling lightheaded, or being a bit sedated, um, and so uh, uh, because of the wider um, uh, CNS-CVS toxicity ratio for lidocaine, um, these, these signs generally appear first well before um, any cardiovascular toxicity. That's right. So and so if you have an obtunded patient, say in the, the HDU or an ICU, who's, um, who's unable to tell you that they're starting to feel these or notice these symptoms, then obviously ECG monitoring and closer observation is required, I think. That's what they mentioned. So, so they're quite happy if, if they've got a cooperative patient who can say, hey, you know, uh, yeah, I'm not should feeling, I, well, I'm not feeling yeah, well on that and yeah. they've been counselled and told what to look out for and the nurses are asking them when they're doing their regular OBS have you noticed any of these symptoms alright um, so I think we've covered most things oh there was one other thing I was going to mention so yeah what about uh, if you're uh, using intravenous lidocaine in the theatre or perioperatively and then you want to transition to a regional technique so sometimes people run um, in our practice anyway so I use it uh, uh, during part of a general anaesthesia and then often at the end of a laparotomy, for example, we um, get our surgeons or ourselves sometimes to put in some rectal sheath catheters and then start using those for the ward. Um, so that that is pretty safe because the, the um, uh, lidocaine is metabolized so quickly. Usually, what happens is um, I run the lidocaine infusion up to the time of the the uh, surgeons putting in the rectal sheath catheters, and, is, and I just stop it while they're doing that. Um, it takes them, you know. Uh, 10, 15 minutes to put it in and then dose them up and um, so by that time you know, you've, you've, uh, the lidocaine's probably worn off by the time the repivacaine which we put down those starts to uh, kick in uh, so yes that is a, the, another contraindication you can't use intravenous lidocaine with another uh, regional another re- local anaesthetic based technique so don't mm-hmm. you obviously they are addish, uh, additive in, uh, in toxicity so that is you know, a contraindication I think we've I think we've covered most things. Um, yeah. is it, if anyone out there has been using intravenous lidocaine, there's some some tips or tricks that they haven't that we haven't covered. Um, it'd be great to hear from you. And we're certainly not the world experts in this area, but we think it's a really interesting and promising technique that we should uh, 
um, publicise a bit more and get people thinking about. So, um, yeah, if anyone's got any comments or wants to write in and uh, let us know how they've been using it or, or got any questions, um, let us know. Okay, Kevin, that was really useful. Thanks for, thanks for coming along. No worries. Thanks, Roger. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you like the show, please go to the Apple Podcast menu and rate us and give us a review. Um, and also feel free to go to the website, uh, org, where there will be links to relevant articles and show notes. Thanks for listening.